Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Read Smart, the official podcast of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. My name is Toby Mundy and I'm the director of the prize, taking over hosting duties today from our usual host, Razia Iqbal. As always, this podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. The Read Smart podcast talks to some of the world's leading writers and, and publishers to explore the world of non-fiction book publishing, as well as provide a behind-the-scenes account of this year's prize journey. The winner of the 2021 Bailey Gifford Prize will be announced on the 16th of November and will be presented with a cheque for £50,000. For the last 22 years, the Bailey Gifford Prize has rewarded the very best in non-fiction writing, spanning fields as diverse as history and current affairs, politics, science, sport, travel, biography, autobiography and the arts. In the run-up to the winner announcement next month, I'm in conversation with our six shortlisted authors, asking them about their lives and enthusiasms and, of course, why the, re- the reasons why they wrote their shortlisted books. Today, I'm joined by Kai Miller. Kai is a multi-award-winning poet and novelist and essayist. His 2014 poetry collection, The Cartographer Tries to Map a Way to Zion, won the Forward Prize, and his 2017 novel, August Town, won several major literary prizes. He's joining us today to talk about his stunning collection of essays, Things I Have Withheld. Welcome, Kai, and congratulations on being shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize this year. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Toby. Thanks for having me. I'm really, really pleased to be here and talking with you. Well, we're very lucky to have you. So, um... This is a remarkable and subtle and extraordinary uh, book. I've never anything, read anything quite like it. There's a quote from Dion Brand, the Canadian writer, that f- frames your book. And I'd like to, to, to turn to that quote and, 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 if you don't mind, read it back to you and then uh, start with that as our jumping off point. But the quote uh, says, Blackness and whiteness structure and mediate, mediate our interchanges, verbal and physical, sensual, political. They mediate them so that there are some things I will say to you and some things that I won't. And quite possibly the most important things will be the ones that I withhold. And Brand says that in context of being a black woman speaking to an audience of of white people. Um, Tell us a little bit about that withholding, about this silence and how it it informs this remarkable book that you've written. Uh, Yeah, I I read that quote from Brand a while ago and I think it... You know, it, it came to life a lot more living in England. Uh, just being conscious of that, being being conscious of the things we don't say uh, because they might make things awkward, uh, because we're worried about the other person's feelings. So it's, it's not that these things aren't true, but you, but for all for all kinds of reasons of politeness and 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 again, just not wanting to cause any kind of rupture. Uh, we withhold so many things. And I think, uh, or I've been growing to think that that comes at the price of, obviously, of knowing each other as well as we could, of loving each other as well as we could, um, of trusting each other. And so I was, I've been wondering for a while, how do you say those risky things? How do you frame them carefully enough? Um, and that's the obsession with this book, uh, to say the unsayable, to finally risk it. It, and it, it, it's it's extraordinary as a meditation. In do you, I mean, so do do you think that language fails us when we need it most? I mean, I hesitate to ask a poet such a question, but I'm curious about what you say. I think it isn't as available to us um, when we need it most. Um, I 
I, I am so conscious of this book of returning to moments when, and I'm sure we've all had this experience, right? Something happens and you, and either the next day or sometimes even a year later, you wake up and you go, oh God, that's what I should have said. Hmm. Uh, you know, that, that's hmm. what I should have responded. It, it doesn't come to us right at the moment. Um, you know, certainly as, as a writer, I, I think about that because when you write a book, your language is so considered. You think it through so carefully. But what about those on-the-spot moments when something happens and you desperately need the right language at this moment and it doesn't come? So do you think there's a, a deep difference between speech and writing where this question is concerned then? Are you, are you more interested in, in, for the purposes of this particular question, interested in speech than writing? I think, but I mean, I, I'm interested in language, but I'm interested in, I, I guess I was conscious of the fact that that language doesn't come, it, at least it doesn't come to me in speech as quickly as, I, I, as I'd as i like it. And and sometimes you just, you, you think these moments are gone, uh, but that's the power of literature, right? That we can actually return to these moments, these moments that, that have haunted me, you know, and I, I talk about several of them in this book here. I mean, here's another one that is not in the book. Uh, being in New Zealand and being on stage giving a talk. Uh, and the next day I'm in the streets of Wellington. A man, he runs up to me, very enthusiastic. He shakes my hand. He says, oh, my God, you're Kai Miller. And I say, yes. And he just goes, oh, my God, I was at your I was at your talk yesterday. It was wonderful. And he's you know just effusing going on. And he finally says, and it was so wonderful, the shocking disparity between your eloquence and your physical appearance. Huh. I mean, it's such a shocking moment, right? And, oh and what, what do you say immediately? Because there is something at the heart of that, that he genuinely meant to compliment me. He genuinely did not mean harm. And how do I respond uh, acknowledging what was meant as kindness, but that comes across very differently? How do you, wow. how do you find something as careful enough to address that? Um, I have what. I, I mean, years later, I've woken up in shame that my response to that was thank you. Like it, 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 it grieves me. And I think that's the kind of moment I wanted to return to. How do you, if a moment like that keeps on haunting you, how do you finally go back and give it the language that it had always deserved? Well, and, and to connect that, that strange haphazard encounter in New Zealand with its weird subtext and 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 your experience of living in in the UK i mean you say too often the meaning of my black male body produces is guilty and predator and worthy of death and those those were feelings that you had quite strongly in the uk i think is that would that be fair to say uh certainly at times yes yes, yes. i mean yeah yeah i'm not sure if it's an if it, if it's an everyday experience but that feeling isn't unfamiliar yeah yeah but when you go to when you go to Kenya and Ethiopia and Ghana, uh -huh. where you, you, you where you think your body should make as it as it were a kind of sense, yes, you say at one point I think you're frustrated that it doesn't make as much sense as it as I would like. What what tell us what you mean by that? Uh, because I think um, as I think I say I say somewhere else. Um, what I mean when I say a place where a body makes sense is a place where our body doesn't raise any questions. Mm. 
And uh, you know, going as as a person who's racialized as black, if you go if you go to the African continent, you think, oh, you know, this is a kind of ancestral land. Your your body's supposed to make an immediate sense, but what happens when you go there and it gets read immediately as foreigner or tourist? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the you know what well, what is the disappointment in that, and how do and how do we deal with that? Um, and 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 that's as true as me going back to Jamaica when my body gets read as queer. And so there's another kind of foreignness that clings to my body. You know, there's there, there are all kinds of ways in which our bodies don't make immediate or just raises questions to the people around us. There's a stunning quote in the first part of the book, which is your part of your series of letters to James Baldwin. Um, and I'm going to quote you back to yourself, which I just promised you at the beginning of the programme I wasn't going to do. But you say, it's the body I wish to write about, those soft houses in which we live and in which, and in which we move and from which we can never migrate except by dying. Your, your relationship with... You seem to... It seems that you sort of fall in love with Baldwin, even though he's long gone. Is that fair, do you think? Or you you are, you are in love with Baldwin in some sense, even though he's long gone, and it's not, and it's not almost impossible to know him. Exactly, but I think he more than anything he's uh, when we want to speak these things, right? We want we want to speak them. Uh, we want to say them uh, to someone that we trust, to someone that we trust would um, handle the material, handle or uh, handle our hesitations, handle or um, the just the fact that we're still working it out. Um, who can you say that that who is a trustworthy and safe space? And just at the beginning of that book, Baldwin felt like that space for me. Um, even though he was dead, he was he was someone who was. I mean, his his body resembles mine in many ways. He's black. He's queer. He's uh, came from a background that was, uh, you know, textured by kind of Pentecostal Christianity. Um, but he was so generous in his intellect. Um, there was so much nuance, uh, which is something I'm always desperately after. And I thought, my God, there is, there is a body, there is a mind that can, that would handle what I'm trying to work through with grace mm. and with intelligence. And I thought, yeah, I wanted to direct it to him. Well, one of the effects of, I mean, your pursuit of nuance is is startling and often very beautiful, and the effect is profoundly literally disarming i think i mean in a sense you're, you you strive to it seems to me that you're striving for candor without conflict i hope you think that's fair yeah i do um what why why did you um why did you why did you take an epistolary form with baldwin um you, you've you've written about the epistolary novel before did i read somewhere that it was, your phd was about epistolary my phd was on on, on the epistolary yes so uh, I'm cute. I'm cute. I mean, they're very effective and beautiful, but there's a tremendous intimacy when for the reader when you encounter these letters. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's that that's a kind of literary reason, right? Uh, I I think there is so lots of those letters, um, or you know, parts of those letters had been written as as other essays before, and they didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they didn't work because the address was wrong, uh, and if it's directed in the wrong way. So, so I think, Toby, I, I think there's some things when, when we're trying to work out some of these things that we don't say, I think if you say them directly to a person, to the person, um, 
all kinds of defensive mechanisms come up and mm. people are unable to hear it. I think the beauty of the epistle is that you get to overhear something. <laughs> and and if we overhear something, our defenses go down a lot, a lot faster. Uh, you know, and, and, and it, you know, we, we see that happening in life all the time. There, there are all kinds of things, all kinds of deep, heartfelt things that people want to say and they can never say it to someone directly. But when that person overhears it being said to someone else, it's received. Um, and it's received in all its nuance and all its grace. And I think that's that's why I chose the letter, mm-hmm. because I, I could allow my reader to overhear what I wanted to say. It's very effective and it's very, very disarming. Um, hmm. Um, I've, I was going to ask you who you imagined as your reader when you were writing this book, but actually I have a feeling that you sort of wrote this book for and to yourself to some extent. Yeah, to some extent. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure we, we all write books uh, mostly to ourselves, no matter what we say. Um, but But I know that even... Like Baldwin, Baldwin is there at the beginning, and, and I won't say that he becomes uh, the main respondent throughout. But there is something that I'm trying to do, which is you know just just a literary thing, that creating those moments of intimacy that the letter gives you. I wanted to create a series of repetents and establish them from that first essay that I could bring up at any time to recreate that intimacy, to bring you back into that space of of just the letter of, of, of here's something, you know, casual being said. So, uh, for instance, um, this is what happened. Um, that just in, 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 in so many essays, all of a sudden it goes back to that statement. Look, this is what happened. And it goes back to a story. Uh, you know, all those tricks I was trying to do from that first essay and to have it, have it see the book throughout that it, that the whole book became a similar space, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, so, and so the reader was always that kind of, the kind of reader who really is the person that is being addressed in the James Baldwin essay, who isn't Baldwin at all, but the person behind Baldwin and the person who has let down their defenses and the person who is overhearing. That is the ultimate reader who gets addressed throughout the whole book. And I think, yes, and, and hmm, interesting. Um, I mean, one of some of the many different sorts of things in your book live in those silences that you know the the important things that we withhold from saying i mean white privilege lives in those silences it it seems to me derives its staying power to some extent from those silences and to not talk about it and to deny its existence gives it space and succor yeah um, but it's not just race is it we encounter the silence also envelops other things we don't talk about or the way we talk about certain things and you show that beautifully in this book as well don't you i mean i'm I'm trying to because you you know i'm it it, it's so easy for someone like me to to simply kind of hark on the ways in which we are uh potentially victimized Mm -hmm. um without thinking about the the ways in which we we inhabit privilege and privileged spaces and i certainly wanted to uh, just think about myself as being someone who there are other people who uh, enact silences towards me or won't say something to me uh, because of my body as male, because of my background as a kind of privileged Jamaican, um, because of my, my my present state when, when I was in the UK as as a professor. There are all kinds of you know mo- 
ways that we move in privilege. And that creates other kinds of silences. And, and I wanted to be aware of that and conscious of that and hold myself to account um, hmm. some of those things. Tell us about the Gully Queens. I love that chapter. Oh, oh my goodness. Uh, yes. Uh, so the Gully Queens, they are a group of um, boys. I mean, the ones who I write about in this, in this essay would consider themselves boys still, but they often um, their gender identities are ambiguous so that they're often they're often moving um, on a kind of trans um, identity line and several of them have been made homeless uh, because of their sexuality because of their gender um, ambiguity uh, and so they've they, they've lived on this on the streets um, they've, they've lived these homeless lives some of them turned to prostitution uh, and they, they just ended up in the news so often in Jamaica. And I realized I, I, I knew a way how to how to kind of infiltrate them, how, how to become how to get a link with them. And mm-hmm. I decided to exploit that and develop friendships with them and listen to their stories. And and yeah, so that essay is I think I think that essay is the beginning of something that will be larger in time. Mm-hmm. Because their stories are so complex and, and their stories continue. Um, but that is that is part of a friendship that I've been trying to cultivate uh, between these homeless. I mean, many of them are not homeless right now, but boys who move in and out of homelessness um, because of their sexuality and because of their gender identity. And what was the gap between what you expected to find when you met them and when you did actually hang out with this queer, this group of queer, this queer youth? I mean, I, I presume you had a very open mind anyway before you went there. But I'm, yeah, I'm sure. I, I had an open mind, but I, I think one one gap was that I romanticized uh, why they were there. I thought it was all, um, you know, like what a horrible, horrible society that we live in that just because they are gay, they would be put out. Uh, but when one boy tells me the story of uh, his mother was, and, and, and anyway, I... Uh, he was put out because his his mother was afraid. Uh, I think he was abusing his own little brother. His mother was protecting the little one. Mm. Uh, like what what options does a does a poor woman have? Who you know here is this older boy who has been abused himself, but he in turn is abusing someone else. Who does she protect at that moment? Uh, and also, they were very open about the fact that they. A lot of their lives were um, a, a lot of how, how they got things was by, by kind of criminal enterprise. Mm. Uh, they were not angels at all, so that was one gap. Yeah. Um, another gap was just how intelligent they were, uh, which sounds really patronizing. That I would not have figured out how smart they were. How in a multi in, in a in a monolingual society like Jamaica, they were able to move in and out of languages just because uh, they were thinking about you know what might happen when they seek asylum elsewhere, when they seek asylum in Argentina and they have to learn Spanish, when they seek asylum in the Netherlands, uh, and they begin to learn these languages. That that fascinated me. So there was a sort of more ubiquitous fluidity than just the, merely the gender fluidity. Exactly, exactly. That sounds fascinating, really fascinating. Uh, but, but you're right, that, that was one moment where the, the big thing that separated us was class. Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, that was very hard to, to, to approach them, especially knowing that I wanted to write their stories, you know, how do I write it without exploiting them? Um, 
And so that was one of the essays that they had to read it before I published it. And, and, I had what, to... and what rules did you set for yourself as a writer so that you you weren't exploiting them? Uh, There's no sense, by the way, in the chapter that you have exploited them. Quite the, quite the contrary. I'm just curious how you navigated that. Ah, uh, that. I mean, day, day day by day, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> uh, honestly, the rules the rules change, Toby, every day um, as as I as I spoke with them. Uh, sometimes it, it it had to do with um, I had to be more open with them. I I I, I had to share as much about myself. So, so you know, rather than being a kind of participant observer, observer, I'm realizing that this was a friendship, and it required something from me as well. Uh, but sometimes it, it 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 meant that things that they offered me, um, in terms of you know how to tell their stories, I and I can't go into those examples. But sometimes I just refuse. I thought no, that you know you are offering it to me, but I think that is exploitative. And I think they live lives that are they're so used to being exploited. They're so used to using um, sex, for instance, as a kind of bartering thing that there, there are all kinds of things you have to refuse and you go no that's that's what you're used to but that's not what we're what we're doing here hmm. you write a wonderful uh chapter celebrating carnival and uh in the midst of that chapter you you say that jamaica is the place where you feel most comfortably gay and i was wondering if you would mind just sort of developing that a bit more uh well that that's that's another strange strand I think, Toby, that had to do with being... So, so when I first came to the UK, uh, one of the things people often said uh, when they heard I was from Jamaica was a kind of note of sorrow. Oh, my God, you're from Jamaica. I'm so sorry. It must be so difficult being gay there. You're so patronizing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, but I think at at the heart of that, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of complicated. I'm trying to work through that complication in those essays is that there's a weird patting oneself on the back. Uh, thank God we are uh, I'm, I'm, we are a less savage place. Thank God we are more refined, that we don't treat or, or gays like that. And, yeah. and, and, you know, so many of the rules, so much of what we, what we encounter as homophobia in Jamaica is, is, is as a result of these colonial British laws, <laughs> and and sometimes I, I just thought in the UK you don't you don't get the right to do that, no, um, right. Uh, so that was one part of it. But also, I think it's it's very simply that in Jamaica I knew, I knew the codes, I knew the language, I knew where people gathered, uh, so it was comfortable. Uh, oftentimes in the UK, um, gayness or you know, LGBT expressions are often in white spaces. Very, I mean, I think, I think that's changing and expanding now, but very often it is white spaces, the, the kind of club that you go to, the kind of music that you listen to. And so the person of color who comes into that space oftentimes has to translate their queerness into a way that becomes acceptable and recognizable uh, to someone in the UK. Uh, and so oftentimes, I mean, as I said in the essay, I, I'd go to clubs in the UK and I get stopped at the door very, very often and they'd say, do you know what kind of club this is? And it was because I wasn't being read or I wasn't um, emanating uh, a kind of queerness that they were comfortable with or that they recognized. Um, they only recognized the black body 
which to them was necessarily a homophobic body. Hmm. And you say in, Jama- in Jamaica, I know how to dance, which I love. I love the way that drops into the sentence. <laughs> um, so let's talk about some. Um, Gosh, there's so many things to talk about. Let's uh, let's talk about the old black woman who sat in the corner, which is possibly oh. possibly my favourite chapter. Although it's it's a tight competition, I must say. But um, so you, there's a chapter in, for those people listening who haven't read this book. There's a chapter in 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 the collection called "The Old Black Woman Who Sat in the Corner," uh, and you, and you say I think it might be the story of my entire island, and it also feels like at the beginning of a novel or even a sort of a novel in embryonic form. Tell us a little bit about this 94-year-old woman, please. Oh, my God. Uh, that <laughs> is, <laughs> yeah, so this is, this is a woman who I, I grew up with. Um, well, I mean, didn't grow up with, but whenever there's a family reunion or something, we, uh, she was there. She was there in, literally sitting in the corner. Um, and no one ever told me the story of how she was connected to our, to our family. And so this essay is about that, how intimately connected she was and why our family decided not to tell that story, not to tell that story to the grandchildren, to the cousins. And so this is this is this kind of piecemeal detective work that the cousins had to work out. Like, who who is she? How is she connected to us? Um yeah. Uh, and then suddenly at the age of 94, she starts speaking and everyone panics. Well, no, no, the, the, this is another woman. I mean, so you're talking about my grandmother. So my grandmother. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. My grandmother at 94. And this is after that, that other woman has died. My grandmother at 94 uh, stands up at our family dinner and says, there are things that I, there are things that we did in those early days that caused, that caused some kind of pain. And before I die, we should talk about these things. Uh, which, I mean, what what an what an incredible thing to say! Uh, and of course, that in itself creates panic. You know, every people don't want to go back to the past, so everyone begins to shudder up as, as if she's senile. And my grandmother was anything but senile. And, and so it's a wonderful scene. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, but and she says that she says, "Don't don't shut me up. Don't do that." I'm. I'm, I might be getting old and, you know, my body's declining, but my mind isn't. And, and we should talk about these things one day. Uh, they don't, they don't listen to this. They don't want to go back to the past. Um, but I do. And so, and I'm not there for this moment. You know, it, all of this is really, is, is related to me. I'm in the UK. And so I fly back to Jamaica as quickly as I can mm-hmm. uh, with a record. And so much of this essay is me sitting down with my grandmother listening to her telling me these things again it's the things that it's the things that were withheld in the family and why were they withheld and why is she finally saying them now and how do these things that we kept secret uh how do they have to how do they circle around these issues of race and gender you know how do they play and how does that story that is very specific to my family as I say in the essay, it is the story of my whole island. You know, every every Jamaican who read that who read that essay says, "Oh my God, we have a story exactly like this, or somewhat like this." You know, we we keep things secret. <laughs> it's a fantastic, fantastic chapter. This sense that uh, the truth or the, these true stories are trying to escape their manacles and come bursting out into the world is is brilliantly done. Um, let, let's God, we're running out of time. Let's. Let's talk a little about the boundaries between private and public in this book. 
I mean, it feels at various points when you're talking about your grandmother and at lots of points in the book that you're really probing this boundary um, for, you know, for the most um, admirable, noble sort of humanistic reasons and trying to evaluate what should belong in the public realm and be visible and up for discussion and what should be withheld in the private realm, if you like. Is that fair, do you think, or have I got that wrong? No, I I, I think so. I, I think that is, that is right. Though I think that one of the things that I'm definitely probing and one of the things that becomes harder and more troubling to probe is that area where I often think when a kind of harm is done to the black body, the black body is expected to absorb it. And that must not be made public in any way. If it causes the white person who did harm any kind of embarrassment, the black body must always suffer, must always absorb, must always hold things in. And that becomes a kind of damage to, to that body itself. Um, and that's certainly one of the dangers that I'm that I'm suggesting happens when we withhold too much. And that is and that is that is something that, that is difficult to wrestle with. How do you how do you talk about these these hurts that happen to you at the cost of the white body being embarrassed or the white body saying, well, that was private. Uh, you know, it's private to your benefit, not to mine. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, you've reproduced the essay, The White Women and the Language of the Bees, which was, at the, at the time of its original publication, the subject of a... a Huge controversy, yes. A, 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 a modest controversy. How do you look back on that episode now? And was I don't. I suspect it wasn't a difficult decision to include the essay, but how do you look back on that period a couple of years ago? A helpful... Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was it was difficult to go through, uh, and again, it's because of everything that I just said a while ago of, of um, how do we talk about these about these hurts that happen to the black body when the white when, when white bodies expect you to absorb it, um, when white bodies insist that you absorb it, uh, but helpful. I, I think without that controversy, um, the whole book would not have been completed. Because that 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 an essay that to my mind was written so carefully, and again to my mind so kindly could still cause that rupture, made me think I'm actually onto something, um, and I have to explore this to the end, no matter what. Well, that is a a rather fabulous point on which to conclude our conversation. I think. Um... This is a marvellous book, um, and I'm so uh, thrilled to have had the chance to discuss it with you, Kai. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for being so uh, just kind and generous with your questions. Um, they were <laughs> it's a huge pleasure. Uh, thank you again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their generous support for this podcast. Uh, do please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at BG Prize for all the latest on future episodes and news of the progress of each year's prize award. You can also sign up for our newsletter through the website for updates that will go straight into your inbox. The Bailey Gifford Prize rewards excellence in nonfiction writing and brings the best in intelligent reflection on the world. The winner of the prize this year will be, as I said at the top of the programme, announced on the 16th of November. Join us next time for another conversation with one of our shortlisted authors. In the meantime, thanks for listening. See you again. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction Podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation and produced by Four Communications.